0: Before we start today's episode, I want to tell you about one of our upcoming events. On the 3rd of February, we're holding a conference on child poverty, where we'll be examining the true picture of child poverty in the UK since COVID-19 and the impact on the children in our care. We've brought together an array of highly acclaimed speakers to present learnings from their own research and work and share best practice for 2021. The day's event, running from 10am to 3pm, will include interactive panel discussions and Q&A sessions for you to share your views. So book onto to this event by visiting childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk or contacting us at hello at aocpp.org.uk.
1: Thank you. If a child is disclosing abuse of any form, let alone CSA or child sexual exploitation, it's really important to believe the child, ensuring that we recognize their needs, recognizing that they are victims and and making the child feel that they're not at fault and, and encouraging the child for disclosing abuse and for asking for help. I mean, sometimes we might end up as practitioners blaming the parents for not protecting the child enough, but if we don't take into account the context and the severity of harm that might be emanating, parents often might feel overwhelmed by what might be happening. And it's also really, really important for practitioners to recognize that parents are the best safeguard for the child and also best safeguarding partner around that table if we ever want to protect that child in an holistic manner.
2: Hello, I'm Wendy Thurgood, Chair of the Association of Child Protection Professionals, and I'm your host for today. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Aravinda Kosharaju about how child protection practitioners can better prevent the sexual exploitation of children and young people. Aravinda is a qualified lawyer and social worker specialising in criminology with many years' experience of working with national and international non-governmental organisations, including Parents Against Child Sexual Exploitation, Lawyers Collective and Commonwealth Human Rights Initiative. Aravinda has researched extensively into child sexual exploitation, trafficking and was involved in various policies, reforms initiated in India and the UK. She's also developed multi-agency practitioner training on safeguarding children from sexual exploitation. Her research draws from critical perspectives in law and criminology, broadly engaging in various issues relating to violence against women and children, criminal justice responses to sexual offending and safeguarding children policy and practice. Her PhD thesis examines the process of attrition in cases involving crimes of child sexual exploitation in England and Wales. Ara is a lecturer and an advanced practitioner at the University of Kent's Centre for Child Protection. Her current research focuses on supporting sexually exploited children through criminal justice systems, effective investigation and the prosecution of sexual offenses against children and working with children on the move. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to hearing about your research and practice relating to child sexual exploitation. And over to you.
1: Thank you, Wendy. Yes, you're right. I'm currently working with the Centre for Child Protection, which is based at the University of Kent. The centre was uh, launched in 2012 and its main vision or its aim is to get to the heart of child protection training through innovative ideas and, and using latest technology with research One of our approaches to offering training is to develop simulative games, serious games on various child protection issues that will allow practitioners to have a safe space or safe medium to kind of practice their skills around how to support children and families affected by various issues. Some of the interesting simulations that we've developed that practitioners might find useful are around sexual exploitation of children around, you know, how do we help children understand the dangers of extremism and radicalization. And we recently have launched a training on crossing the line. I mean, we try to pick up on some of the current trends in child protection issues. But in addition to that, some of our academic courses at the University of Kent are also very useful for practitioners, particularly our MA in advanced child protection, which allows practitioners to be on the front line whilst working full time and do a distance online course. And a lot of my students tend to be multi-agency practitioners who are concerned and who are passionate about child protection. And it kind of provides a community of practitioners who can, you know, co-produce knowledge and who can learn in a shared learning environment. That's what currently I I am involved in.
2: How has that been affected under COVID-19? Because my main concern is children that are at risk, particularly in the first lockdown, how vulnerable they were. So how has that impacted your work?
1: It has. I mean, in the last year or so, my role has become more than a lecturer and more like a support worker to my students itself, because frontline practitioners are struggling to cope with the challenges, whether it's health or whether it's social care or policing. However, I mean, I've been kind of looking at and trying to understand what is happening to children and families in the lockdown. I think you may have already heard from NSPC's work and others who've been writing or sharing practice knowledge. Children are obviously locked up and they are having increasing access to computers and internet. And there's lots of reports that have increased in in the last year or so in terms of online grooming and online grooming for sexual abuse. We've heard from Interpol, we've heard from Europol, and we've heard from our own national crime agency in terms of the number of activity that has significantly increased since the lockdown and trying to target children. Also, I mean, it's very clear that children are also at risk of harm from people who should be caring for them sometimes, and that can be very difficult. And NSPCC has also highlighted that children are obviously having to process their trauma and deal with all that they're experiencing on their own with reduced access to services. In my own field of research, I mean, within child sexual exploitation and criminal exploitation arenas, we have heard from news reports and from practitioners that although the number of children who are going missing, who may have been groomed and as a consequence go missing, although the numbers have come down slightly, those children who are highly vulnerable... Or considered to be more at risk are continuing to go missing and often for longer periods of time and they might end up being locked up or being isolated or you know trapped in those places where it might be unsafe for them to live. How do you think professionals can identify
2: those key vulnerabilities in some of these children?
1: I think if you're a professional working and also I think this would be relevant to parents and carers who might be concerned as well From research and from my experience of working, there aren't like specific vulnerabilities we could say that, you know, this child might be at risk or anything like that. Every child by virtue of their age and sometimes children could be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So every child may be at risk. At the same time, this is not like scaremongering or, you know, I'm not trying to scare parents and carers or professionals. If a child already has certain particular vulnerabilities, whether it's bereavement, whether it's socioeconomic vulnerabilities, or not having enough care at home, for example, children in care could be additionally vulnerable, but My own experience of working with child exploitation for many years indicates that sometimes we kind of misunderstand the idea of being in care and vulnerability because sometimes grooming can actually lead to children ending up in care because it's one of the things that groomers encourage a child to leave home, go missing or, you know, go into care because then they can be on their own and there wouldn't be anybody like a parent who can monitor or, you know, oversee their welfare and well-being.
2: Are you seeing a reduction in the label that some girls and boys can be given if they're risk-taking. Is there a shift in the professionals understanding that behavior that there could be somebody manipulating them behind the surface?
1: I think there certainly is that shift that we are seeing. Professionals certainly are much more aware and the legislative changes recently since the 2015 Modern Slavery Act has changed the kind of wording because previously, although sexual exploitation was used and known, law never recognized it as a form of offense. It was more child prostitution, for instance, in inverted commas. But since 2015, that terminology has been replaced. I think that has come from a desire to deal with that kind of archaic phrases or labeling that happens around children however issues around agency children going on their own volition like you know why are these children getting into cars of these men why are they going back to the perpetrators they're putting themselves at risk these things might pop in here and there they may not often get challenged whether it's in meetings case conferences or meetings or say mash meetings or other places i think professionals should feel more confident to challenge those kind of phrases and terminology And it's also important to understand that particularly children in their adolescence, adolescent brain processes risk quite differently from how adults process risk. And if we don't make that a focal point when we are working with young people, I'm not talking about pre and children, particularly adolescents. If we don't realize that the way they are processing risk might be different, we end up labeling them and we end up promoting those myths that float around in the world out there and also in the practice arena.
2: Definitely, definitely. But we're still not seeing many prosecutions, are we, in relation to this activity?
1: Yes, you are right. I mean, in a way, we have seen some shift or some change, or maybe I could say we have turned a little corner when it comes to prosecutions. And we we, obviously people who follow media, you know, you might have read like lots of operations that have been happening around child sexual exploitation. And some cases have been brought to court and we have seen convictions and lots of emphasis in the media on what impact these kind of offenses will have on children. And at the same time, what we, we need to realize is although we've seen some increases in prosecutions, I don't think it's proportionate to the number of you know, reports that we are receiving. As it is, child sexual abuse or sexual exploitation is very much like what would you say? Not it's that much reported, still one up- in 40 seven. 40. Yeah, unreported. I mean, what were the figures like it? Is it one in seven tend to mm. report to authorities? Over seventy percent of adults in, in research we know that haven't told anybody. And 25 or 30% have even spoken to police. So there's a lot of what we call as dark figure of crime in in criminological terms. If you take that into account and if we take the number of reported crimes in the last five years, how many child sexual exploitation cases have been reported or victims have been identified and compare it with the number of cases that have come to court, I think it still is quite disproportionate.
2: And the children feel responsible, don't they, because they've entered into a so-called contract with the perpetrator, unknowing to them, and that's part of the grooming process. But it's a real risk, isn't it, when you're actually wanting a prosecution. It's the challenge it must pose because the children feel partly responsible as well, don't they?
1: Yes, that sense of loyalty might might always be there because there's a sense of self-blame. First of all, children find it difficult to talk about, you know, whatever might be happening about their sexual life or their sexuality or what might be happening in terms of sexual offending. anybody let alone parents so it might be very difficult to disclose and once they disclose or at the time of disclosing I think children tend to weigh their consequences a lot you know they feel the responsibility not only for the families but also for the perpetrators who have groomed them. Children think that these are the people who've been their friends particularly because of grooming they always or they often consider these people as their friends Yeah, they carry that that burden, what might be the consequences for them as well. And also as a hope that they could rescue this relationship. Because when children are groomed for exploitation, they have what parents used to call when I used to work with Pace is, is a honeymoon period. They have good times, they go partying, they are treated very well and they might have experienced a good life. And they might genuinely believe that sometimes, you know, particularly if it's like a boyfriend, girlfriend or, you know, boyfriend, boyfriend kind of model of grooming they would think that they were in a relationship and something went wrong or or sour and there's still hope to rescue that relationship. The way they process would be similar to how a victim of domestic abuse might feel or experience, you know, hoping to rescue the relationship.
2: It's a form of coercion and control, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's just like that domestic abuse because those children are just manipulated into that situation. It's something that professionals struggle with because it doesn't fit the category of child protection very easily because the parents are attempting to protect them. And it's been a bit of a battle of uh, mine when I was in practice to actually make sure that there is a strategy meeting on these children that we're concerned about. And flags put on the system, you know, something like the child information system, that that strategy has happened and that this child's at risk, particularly if they're then taken into hospital but it's not something that's widely used nationally. You have to be really forceful to actually even try and get it to child protection strategy because it's bounced back because they fall into that adolescent too hard category. I'm not saying all local authorities, but it's certainly an area that challenges people. And that's where we should look to actually having a system that is open To actually be having these wider conversations about the element of risk, even if they do have protective parents, because parents can't lock children up, can they?
1: No, you're absolutely right on that last point, especially. I mean, my heart goes out to those parents who struggle 24-7 to protect their children. I mean, 90% of parents want the best for their children. There might be odd few who might be the kind of source of harm for a child. But think of all those parents who struggle and whilst also holding jobs and, you know, looking after other children, trying to deal with something that they've never anticipated. Often parents feel isolated and, mm. and don't know how to deal with it. They haven't had user guide to deal with these kind of problems. And the perpetrators can be very clever in, in kind of distancing the child, isolating the child away from all support systems, not necessarily the family, but also their own peers from the school. So they tend to isolate and target the child and make the child believe that there is anybody who cares for them. It's only the perpetrator or his friends. That's the reason why they tend to keep going back. And sometimes it's also clever tactics, particularly if it's organized form of abuse, where there might be groups of perpetrators involved. They might also kind of, you know, work in a very sophisticated manner where they might collect all the information about the child. They know everything about the child, the details. So simple things like, you know, I know where your mom works. I have seen your sister, you know, working that path from school. So they drop these kind of little information that the child might pick up as cues. And then that might instill fear in the child and the child might continue to do what the perpetrators might ask her or him to do. Parents, I mean, I'm not trying to kind of corner our practitioners, but our child protection practice has, in a way, focused heavily on how to protect the child within the family. Only recently that we are trying to learn, you know, what do we do when the tables are turned, when the source of harm is coming from outside the family. And in in these contexts, some of the practitioners who haven't had any training don't know what to do. If it is a child at risk from a parent or a carer, you take the child away from that source of harm, you know, ask for care orders, supervision orders, and you kind of, you know, manage that and deal with the risks of harm. Whereas if the source of harm is coming from outside the family, what do you do? I mean, sometimes we might end up as practitioners blaming the parents for not protecting the child enough. But if we don't take into account, you know, the context and the severity of harm that might be emanating... Parents often might feel overwhelmed by what might be happening. They often need support and advice as to how to deal with that. And it's also really, really important for practitioners to recognize that parents are the best safeguard for the child and also best safeguarding partner around that table if we ever want to protect that child in an holistic manner.
2: Yeah, I mean, some of the work that I was doing before I retired was making sure there were adolescent risk panels So you could look at cases such as the children that were perhaps being exploited through drug running as well as sexual exploitation. And I think that is something that then removes the pressure off the family that they can work with partners and perhaps local youth workers and such like to really identify these children. I mean, the activity can happen in broad daylight as well as of an evening. People get that perception that it is just of a night these children are sneaking out but actually they're then missing school, aren't they? So it's about getting the school and the wider community to actually watch out for these children and not see them as the problem, but to tackle the wider concept. So what do you think brings these cases to court?
1: Hmm. Very, very key question. I think very much close to my heart. Um... I mean, I could be here for hours, but I want to focus on a few things that might be helpful for all practitioners, not only those who are involved in in investigations or in the prosecution of these cases. I think being child-centered and going with the pace of the child, so kind of not either pushing the child to kind of disclose everything, you know, at the speed that, for instance, a police officer might want or a prosecutor might want. But rather going with the child's pace and ensuring that the family, particularly parents and carers, are involved because a lot of the time the supporting evidence comes from parents and family members who can provide whether it's kind of you know details as to where the child might have gone where or forensic evidence in the form of clothing if there is assaults and rapes and that kind of thing, and also I think one of the key things that I've learned in my research is. The time of disclosure and the practitioner who handles those disclosures and their attitudes to how they respond to the child is really crucial. If a child is disclosing abuse of any form, let alone CSA or child sexual exploitation, it's really important to believe the child and also ensuring that we recognize their needs, recognizing that they are victims and and making the child feel that they're not at fault and, and encouraging the child for disclosing abuse and for asking for help and support. And for colleagues who are investigating or prosecuting these cases, I believe our system puts heavy responsibility on on the children to stand up in the courtroom or to kind of make those statements against these men who are quite powerful in many respects. There's such power imbalance between children and the perpetrators. Often, sometimes one child might be kind of giving evidence against a group of perpetrators, and that can be extremely difficult for grown-ups, let alone for a teenager or or for 11, 12-year-old. So people who are responding to this particular crime put like a victim support strategy from the time go, from the time a child discloses there should be a victim support strategy that's tailored to the needs of that particular child and ensuring as we move along that rather than seeing the child in isolation, looking at it in context, because often what that child might bring to the table is one piece of the jigsaw. Her evidence might be one piece of the jigsaw. There might be other circumstantial evidence, other other kind of you know exhibits that the police could produce. And I'm not an expert in investigation, but what I'm trying to drive home is, are there other victims in, in that particular area? Has this perpetrator contacted anybody else? And who else? And also encouraging other children if there's a group form of abuse. I think this has happened where there are like big operations in certain areas of the country, but not necessarily something that's picked on everywhere. I think recognizing the context of abuse and taking account why the child might have become a victim and what might have been the consequences and understanding those impacts on the child and taking on those impacts on board in their evidence, that applies to prosecutors who present the case often. I think it is really important for lawyers who are presenting, representing the cases to make it very clear they present the context as well for the jury for the judges and for those who are involved in in the trials and unless we educate those people who are involved in the process they often tend to ask the same questions that you were talking about earlier why is this child going back there must be something wrong she looks old enough she should have known better you know you're never asking he's old enough or you know that woman an adult person who's abused this child is old enough why didn't she think why didn't she take responsibility for her actions so We tend to rather focus, you know, agency responsibility and voluntariness questions more on the children than on the people who should be acting more responsibly.
2: Yeah, I just want to share a quick case, really sum it up. But equally, males are just as at risk of exploitation and sexual exploitation. And there was a case where he was about 13, 14, but quite a big lad, was actually targeted by a girl outside his school quite an attractive girl who sort of used the girlfriend model but then introduced him to an older friend and he was bunking off school to go and have sexual relationships with them. He saw no problem in that but what he didn't realise is he was being drugged, giving alcohol and certain drugs and then he was being filmed having sexual activity with these two girls and it wasn't until he went to a family planning clinic did the nurse ask the right questions and we were able to work with him and the school because it was such a change in character. And these two girls had been well known to another local authority further up the line. And it was a really good case. They were prosecuted and the police were really supportive of how we went gently. But that was down to doing a proper assessment and listening to what was going on for that boy because he, He kind of felt he was getting out of his depth but wasn't complaining about what was happening and it was only once the police went and explored the situation did they find that he'd been filmed and live filmed it was being live streamed so horrific you know once he actually realized what was going on but that could so easily have got missed you know like so many of these cases and equally we could have gone down the route where we thought he wasn't going to complain and we would never have identified that form of abuse. So it's so complex, isn't it? So complex. It
1: is. I mean, abuse of boys yes gets under the carpet more often than than the abuse of girls. I would say, particularly, I think it's we need to look at some of the social and structural factors as well. I mean, the gender norms that we have, yes. uh, the way we expect the the, the masculinity young boys fall into that trap of masculinity and may not seek help often. We as professionals also might fall into that trap. So if it is boys who are, you know, disclosing abuse, we may not believe them as uh, readily. We might put it down to these boys exploring their sexuality, or you know, boys don't cry. That kind of thinking, forms of thinking, might might also underpin our responses to those children. And so it's kind of being aware and being conscious of the fact that we need to be believing these children, but also being very much aware of our own unconscious biases that might be influencing our work is really, really vital.
2: Really good. So you've done a lot of work with parents against child exploitation in PACE. What would you say is the role of parents and the message that you'd like to get out to parents and carers?
1: I think in a way I've kind of said that, but I think it's really important to reiterate, be vigilant, don't be afraid. I'm I'm not trying to kind of scare any parent, but be vigilant if you observe changes in your child that you think, you know, your intuition is always right. So if you think something is not right, be vigilant. If you're not sure, don't be afraid to ask for help from experts in this field. And also the fact that in my experience, it's really important for parents to recognize that they are not alone. Often parents suffer in isolation, thinking that this is happening to their daughter, their son, and may not know that there might be parents out there and there might be organizations such as Parents Against Child Exploitation who can support parents and families. So seek help. And like I said, and I would like to reiterate again, for both parents and also for practitioners, that parents are the best safeguard or carer is the best safeguard a child could have. And parents are the best safeguarding partners. So, partnership is really vital. Practitioners should invite parents as a key element of the responses to child sexual exploitation. And parents also should be proactively engaging with the agencies, not only to get prosecutions on board, but also to protect the child more effectively and also to prevent the abuse before it escalates.
2: And professionals to have in place the adolescent risk panels. I think every local authority should have that in place, but we've got an exciting event coming up. Would you like to tell us more about the training event that's coming up? I can't remember the date actually.
1: It's the 24th and the 25th of June titled Exploitation 2021, tackling the culture and the challenges of trafficking modern slavery and county lines. It's a very exciting event, particularly because the whole idea when we were conceiving this conference was to bring practitioners together. So they could have a space to kind of reflect and learn from emerging research, from also um, new initiatives in responding to exploitation issues more proactively. So I think I encourage people who are involved in the field of exploitation, either as investigators, prosecutors, support workers, researchers or trainers or people in strategic roles who might be kind of leading on strategies for local authorities or nationally or regionally to join us at this Exploitation 2021 conference. And I think if people Googled Exploitation 2021 conference, they would be able to go to the website and register. There are an exciting group of presenters and speakers. I'm really Yeah, I think you can see me getting excited. (laughs) I think it's going to be a very good event that would enrich people's thinking and people's views around practice, policy and research.
2: We're sad we can't do it face to face, but we still have the opportunity for lots of rich discussion with how it's the technology behind it, with how it's working. And we're finding actually, we can open up to people right across the nation. And what we have found is that people internationally are dialing into our conferences as well. So I welcome anyone... They can go through the AOCPP site that links up. And as I say, we're in partnership with Kent University. So we're really looking forward to that event. I think we've come to the end. And I really appreciate you taking your time out, your busy day. It is such a complex situation. Is there any final strap line that you'd like to just share?
1: I think um, this issue is very complex, as you have rightly said. I think, think child and family. And let the child and the family lead the way. That's what I would say.
2: Yeah, every contact counts.
1: Thank you ever
2: so much and have a nice evening. Thank you for listening to the
0: AOCPP's podcast. If there are any specific topics you want to discuss in future episodes, email us at helloaocpp.org.uk. At and if you would like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, then visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk Thank you.